Uh, my name is Tom Nelson, and uh, welcome to the Leeward Campus, where we have lots of fun. Um, Randy, I was thinking maybe you would do the message this morning. You seem to have a good beat on things. No. No? Okay, well, I tried, you know, and uh, they just sort of let me, I guess, show up for this message. So we do have a lot of fun, and uh, this topic is of interest to all of us, but it's certainly confusing. Uh, and as I said to the first service, um, there's lots of different interpretive challenges we all have. But having an interest in the end of time is an important thing. Uh, and uh, one of the magazines I read quite regularly is The Atlantic. Um, and the, the latest recent magazine um, answered the question, very interesting. In The Atlantic, the last page, if you're an Atlantic person, anybody Atlantic person here, has the big question. It asks all kinds of questions that are important. And I was just really blown away that um, the big question was this. How and when the world will end? Seriously. Now, there are many different answers to that question. We all have a curiosity about the end of time. And uh, let me just, can I just give you a little bit of a sample of the brightest minds of our day? Uh, Here is Neil Tyson, an astrophysicist. He's a... part of the American Museum of Natural History. And uh, this is how he answers the question. He says, the world will be here with or without us until the sun dies five billion years hence. At that point, the sun's atmosphere will have expanded to engulf the entire orbits of Mercury, Venus, and the Earth, which will have become charred embers spiraling one by one to the crucible that is the sun's core. And no kidding, this is how he ends it. Have a nice day. (laughs) Uh, Craig Hamilton Parker is a self-described psychic and medium. I I don't know how you become that. Is there an authentication or credentialing for being a psychic? I don't know. But he weighs in on this question. He says, by the time the sun becomes a red giant and eats the earth, mankind will have evolved to realize that the only reality is consciousness. And that consciousness is rooted in the quantum world. He goes on to say, this will give us miraculous spiritual power, transform us into super beings capable of bending the laws of physics and living within the sun itself. Seriously. Now, unless you think I just am impressed with the wisdom of scientists, let me suggest another very bright person that weighs in. Some of you might be fans of her, Aubrey Plaza, Parks and Rec actress right? She has her own take on this. Uh, I thought I would just dispense her immeasurable wisdom to this question. Smart lady, I'm sure. She says, tomorrow a giant asteroid will wipe us all out, mid-text. And then she writes, or not. Maybe we should all throw our phones away just in case. So there you have it. How does the world end? We have all have opinions, and we all have an interest, don't we? We have a deep curiosity about this, and Hollywood reinforces that. I mean, think of all the end-of-the-world apocalyptic movies. Uh, I could just list them, you know, one by one, but the latest is World War Z. I thought I would just, those of you who are into that, uh, they're just all over the place. New Invasion of Body Snatchers and The Road. And, I mean, this is a genre that imprints a, a, an idea about the end of the world in our mind. But why do we have such a curiosity about the end of the world? Why do we think of the future? Well, the Bible tells us that we were made in time, but made for more than time, and that we were created with eternity in our hearts. 
And the Bible is a book that is not just about the past. Most of us think of the Bible as an old book about the past. But it is also a book about the future. Because the greatest story ever told is a story. And a story has a beginning and an end. This year, we have been walking through the Bible in what's called open air. If you're visiting or newer to Christ's community, we started in January, beginning in Genesis, and we're going to finish at the end of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, uh, the last Sunday of December. And we find ourselves right now in the book of Daniel, in the section of the prophets. Daniel does speak of the past, but he speaks a lot about the future. And I've had a sort of demented thought <laughs> this week. What if the Atlantic editors had asked Daniel that question? How and when the world will end? What would Daniel say? Well, he says a lot about this, actually. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And particularly, we're going to zero in on Daniel 12, which you heard read earlier. So let's just jump right in, in this marvelous book. Um, let me just frame it. it has, uh, this book has 12 chapters in the English Uh, And it's broken in perfect symmetry in half. Very unusual for an Old Testament book. The first six chapters um, actually are written in a language that's very uncommon in the Old Testament. It's Aramaic. It's the lingua franca of the day. And it addresses God's sovereignty over the nations, the broader nations. Thus, it's language of Aramaic, which again is very unique in the Bible. But then in chapter 7 through 12, the language shifts to the normal language of the Old Testament, Hebrew, and focuses on God's sovereignty over time. So God's sovereignty over the nations, God's sovereignty over time. And the book of Daniel is named after this young Jewish exile that's taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. But as we know, really the book is not about Daniel. It's about the God of Daniel and his sovereignty over everything, including time. Now let me say also that the challenges of this literature are immense. I already alluded to that. I really wanted Randy to speak, but he chickened out on this subject. Um, this is a different kind of genre or genre. Uh, most of us know that the Bible has uh, brilliant literature in every genre. Narrative, poetry, um, different kinds of very artistic arrangements. And genre is like scaffolding around meaning and words. But this particular genre is a genre of apocalyptic literature. And it's very challenging. Of all the Bible, this genre of what is unique, how do you interpret it? It's very difficult. The more I've studied this, and I've studied it a lot, sometimes the more confused I am because the most brilliant scholars of the Old Testament are all over the place in the meaning of even the individual words, let alone how this all fits together in the Bible. Picture with me. You ever done a Rubik's Cube? Some of you are really good at it, I'm sure. But you know, you, you try to get it all like this, all right, and there's still one square that doesn't match up. That's much of my experience in this apocalyptic genre called eschatology. Now, I used a big word, Randy. You used it first. But let me unpack that just a little bit, what it means as we enter into this text. Eschatology comes from a Greek word, eschatos, and it simply means the remote end of something. Uh, the farthest end of an end zone. We're getting ready for football, right? Chiefs football? Think about the very corner in the end zone is the eschatos. Or a building, the very, very remote building or corner of your house is the eschatos. 
And so when we think about time, the farthest reaches of time is the eschatos. When time's curtain is closed, the very far reaches. We had this language of Star Trek, the final frontier. And so eschatology is the study of time as it is concluded by a sovereign God as the curtain of time unfolds. So as we think of Gen- uh, Genesis, my goodness, Daniel chapter 12, uh, there are three questions I'd like us to raise as we unpack this. First is, how will the world end? How will the world end? Secondly is the question, when will the world end? And lastly and most importantly is, how are we to live now? So how does the world end? When does it end? And how do we live now? So let's dive in, verses 1 through 4 of Daniel chapter 12. How will the world end? Now, I'd like to read, reread this text, and I'd like you to listen carefully at the repetition and the themes that we want to unpack. This is God's Word. At that time shall arise Michael, and the language is Mikael, it means who is like God. This is a very powerful angel throughout Scripture, and Daniel calls him the great prince. This is an angelic, powerful being who is like God. The great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, one thing that stands out to us as thoughtful readers of the text is the strong repetition of the word time. Do you see it? Particularly the phrase, the time of the end. It begins in chapter 11, 35, as Daniel builds to the end of time, And it is at the heart of Daniel's communication. This, again, is this picture of eschatology at the end of time. Now, I want you to also notice that Daniel paints a portrait, broad brushstrokes of when the curtain of time closes under God's sovereignty. What will it be like? And there are four main strokes here to understand. First, there's a time of great distress. Do you notice this language? A time of great trouble. If we look at the context, this trouble is precipitated by a great world leader or world system called the Antichrist as it builds to the future. And it's called by theologians, if you want to impress your friends at school or friends at summer vacation, call it the Great Tribulation. We don't use the word tribulation very much. But the word is an intensification, what I would call the perfect storm of human misery. All aspects converge together in a unique time of the perfect storm of human conflict, war, suffering, and distress. Secondly, you notice in this text something that really is quite surprising, and that is the second broad brushstroke of the end of time before the curtain closes is Daniel sees an important book. You notice in verse 1 and 4, it is emphasized. Now, where does this idea come from? It comes from Torah, or the first part of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. First time we're introduced to the book of God is Exodus 32, verse 33. God tells Moses um, that his redeemed people will be in a book, or we might say a heavenly roster. 
picture is some names are written in this book and some are not. It's an invitation list. If you've done a wedding, uh, put on a wedding, been part of a wedding, you know one of the most difficult things about a wedding is the invitation list. Who do you include? Who do you exclude? You know, a great auntie so-and-so who lives in, you know, Netherlands or something, or a friend, or, I mean, you have to limit the list. And one of the greatest social awkward moments is a wedding crasher. You just don't crash a wedding because your name's not on the list. And this is the theme of the Old Testament. There are no wedding crashers at the end of the day. Either your name is in or out. And this is where Daniel is focused. Human destiny has two contrasting realities on this heavenly roster. Some names are written in it and some are not. Third, brushstroke. Daniel Oftus sees a vast resurrection. Notice in verse 2, there's again this contrasting eternal destinies and realities of people who have died. There are those names written in the book of life. And the picture here is one of unimaginable eternal delight. That's what often we call, simplistically at times, heaven. But then notice the contrast, very vivid. Those who are resurrected, bodily resurrected, to experience eternal shame and punishment. That's the idea of the biblical view of hell, or being separated from God forever. The idea here is that all human beings have an eternal destiny. And the question Daniel wants, as he builds it in the book, is where is our name written? What is our destiny? So you have this time of great trouble, this perfect storm at the end of time. You have this centrality of this book. You have this vast bodily resurrection of those who have died, and you have very interesting, it's one of the hardest things to interpret in this section, is all of a sudden there's this phrase, many will run to and fro. In other words, Daniel sees this knowledge explosion. You see that knowledge will increase, and it's very hard to know what's going on here. The idea of knowledge can mean the knowledge of God. There's a great searching of the knowledge of God, a new understanding of the knowledge of God, or knowledge in general, that knowledge in humanity will expand. We think of it sort of a technological information age, expanse of human knowledge. The important thing to grasp, I don't know exactly what it means, but the important thing to grasp is the parallel nature of broad brush, broad brush stroke one and four. They're set in beautiful eschatological poetry in this four pieces. So there is a contrast between the time of the great distress, an intensification of suffering in the world, and then a contrast of a good picture, a picture of maybe human flourishing, multiplication. We don't know what to and fro means exactly, whether it's technological advance, but knowledge increases. So it is a positive picture. So you have a very negative and a positive, and Jesus will uh, unpack this, and we'll touch on it in just a moment, but Jesus tells us the end of time is a mixed deal, a greater intensification of suffering, and then also a sense of normalcy. Okay, so keep that in mind. What I want you to grasp is there's a time of contrast at the end of time, and this, I think, is best said by Charles Dickens in his wonderful novel, A Tale of Two Cities. You remember how it starts? We often just use the first phrase. Let me read the whole introduction because it's perfect. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the age of belief. It was the age of incredulity. It was the season of light. 
It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Daniel paints the worst of times and the best of times when the curtain of time closes. Keep that in mind as we look ahead in just a moment to Jesus' teaching. How will the world end? We have some broad brushstrokes. Maybe there are more details we want, but there's some broad brushstrokes. So when will the world end? You'll notice that Daniel addresses this. It's his insatiable curiosity like us. The rest of chapter 12, from verse 6 on, is all about the when. You'll see days and it's not how, it's when. And notice Daniel's attention is alerted here. He says in verse 6, it's the burning question to the heavenly visitor, how long will it be till the end of these wonders? This idea of wonders is a beautiful picture of both the good and the bad. This escalation at the end of time. Verse 7, the heavenly visitor says to Daniel, and, and this is classic, you guys, it's humorous. Because the way the heavenly visitor answers Daniel is often how I answer my wife Liz. Right? I sort of give this nondescript answer, and it, she's very patient. It drives her crazy. Just answer the question. I kind of ramble off somewhere, some vague answer. I'm good at that. Well, this is what it appears to be. This divine visitor gives a vague answer. And you know, he says, oh, oh, a time, times, and half a time. And you go, huh? What does that mean? And if we look at biblical scholarship and Old Testament usage, this can be a time, can be a year. Times are two years in some senses. Half a time is six months. So if you add it together, it's three and a half years. But this word also can mean periods of time. So is something perhaps going on here? Notice, don't you love this? Verse 8. Do you see it if you have your Bible? Daniel says, Huh? If Daniel doesn't understand the details, it's a bit challenging for me. He says, I did not understand. Now, notice the response in verse 13 and 9. The heavenly visitor says, that's okay. He says to Daniel, go your way. He doesn't answer the question, at least not in any specificity. Eugene Peterson in the message, great paraphrase of this text. I love how Eugene Peter says, Peterson says, go your business, go do your business, Daniel, now. In other words, Daniel, live faithfully now. That's the message. Now, this burning question of when the world will end is not new. Not only in Daniel's time in the 6th century B.C., but Jesus' disciples were all over this question. And there's a great story in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have your Bible with you, in electronic or paper form, scoot to Matthew chapter 24 in the New Testament. There's the most amazing story of Jesus and his disciples. Most of Jesus' disciples were like me. They grew up in a small rural area. They, they grew up in Galilee. And they're making their way to one of the wonders of the ancient world, at least in the first century. It's Herod's temple complex in Jerusalem. Amazingly beautiful and big and awesome. And they're coming out of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, and they come out with their mouths wide open. Because they've never seen anything like this. It's like, I grew up in a small town. And uh, the tallest skyscraper in Malacca, Minnesota, was three-story bank building. 
I mean, that was like downtown. That was the skyline of Malacca, Minnesota, population 1900, and one stoplight. I'll never forget as a kid going to Minneapolis an hour away, walking downtown for the first time, looking at the IDS building, it was 65 stories, and I was like, wow. And only that I got on the express elevator and got up in the observatory and looked all over Minneapolis-St. Paul. I was just in awe. And this is where the disciples are. And so they walk out of the temple, and they're like, Jesus, look at this. And you'd think Jesus would say, yeah, yeah, pretty amazing buildings, aren't they? Jesus just floors them. He says, all this is just going to be rubble. Now that's how you pop somebody's balloon of enthusiasm. And the text tells us in Matthew 24 that these guys know something's going on. They have 30 minutes to walk, which was a good thing from the temple compound to the east on the Mount of Olives. And it looks like they didn't say anything. But when they get to the top of the Mount of Olives and look at Jerusalem nestled below to the west, they ask Jesus the big question, just like out of the Atlantic. When will all this end, Jesus? Verse 3 of 24, the text says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Don't you love that? Saying, tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign of your coming? And the close of the age, or literally the end of time. That's the picture. And Jesus, as a brilliant rabbi, gives a commentary on Daniel. It's called a midrash, a commentary. And he paints a more fuller picture, a more textured picture of the end of time. And you will notice that within that is this escalation of certain things. Uh, Spiritual deception is number one. False teachers, war, famine, natural disasters, persecution of Christians, as well as an amazing expansion of the good news around the globe. You have both, the good and the bad. But what Jesus does, that Daniel doesn't do, is he gives a metaphor. The metaphor, well, I'm at a disadvantage. Can I tell you that? As a guy teaching? The metaphor is birth pains. I mean, as much as I try, ladies, I can't say, I know, I feel your pain. Now, I vicariously did when my wife had two children. And just let me tell you, if you've had a baby or you'll have a baby, you're my hero. They don't call it labor for nothing. Unbelievable. Lots of pain. But the outcome is a new creation, something glorious, right? When you hold that precious little baby in your arms, it's new life. This is the picture Jesus gives. He says the end of time. A new creation is going to be birthed. But there's going to be a lot of pain getting there. And notice he says very specifically in verse 36, nobody knows the time. Only the Father. He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. How could Jesus not be more clear? And yet, through the history of the church, history of the 20th century, my goodness, the number of books written, the number of codes revealed, the number of money made by false prophets and last-time writers and 
Charlatans is unbelievable. The latest guru who's discovered the end time, it's this year, next year, this week. We can know the progression. And what I asked one of our wonderful staff uh, folks at Christ Community, she's a wonderful artist and a brilliant person, Heidi, to kind of give a picture of the progression. We can know the progression. And there are really seven kind of movements of redemptive history, and I just wanted to highlight those on this slide. If we start with Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we have creation and fall. God originally created the world good. It was corrupted, right? We talk about creation, fall, redemption, new creation, the four-chapter story of Scripture. Here we have the timeline of this. So we have the original creation and fall, the corruption of it, and then notice the gap. We're just scooting all the way over the Old Testament is Jesus' first coming. A major moment in redemptive history, not only creation and the fall, but God's plan of redemption through Christ. The first advent, Jesus comes, 33 AD. You have the, Jesus dying on the cross, the resurrection of the tomb, and the tomb and the ascension. And where we are now, what has already taken place is what's on the left, your left. The first three movements of seven movements of human history. We are waiting for the second advent. We're between Christ's first coming and second coming. And then in our religious tradition, our evangelical tradition, we have another picture of what's called the millennium. And scholars differ on this as well. But the idea of millennium comes from a Greek word in Revelation 20 of a thousand years. So our particular tradition says that Christ returns, and then there's this 1,000-year earthly reign. And then after that, there's the final judgment of all evil, Satan, and so forth, and then the birth of the new heavens and new earth. Point is, we are tweeners. We are in the time between. And what we need to understand, I think, more than anything else, is the Bible tells us the world, end of the world as we know it, is not precipitated by the demise of the solar sun, but rather by the sovereign sun's return to earth. I don't usually do this, but I think the importance is very high. I'd like to read, have you look at our doctrinal statement around this area of the end of the world that is a part of our tradition I'd like to read it because it's very important to us. We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial, that's that word I mentioned, return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands a constant expectancy, and as our blessed, blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Notice also we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in the time between. How are we to live? That's the big question of Daniel. He gives us a little picture of how the future will end, but he says, live well now. George Elton Ladd, who's a wonderful theologian, has described this when he said, Jesus' eschatological teaching, like the prophets, is fundamentally ethical in its character and purpose. I like that. He is never interested in the future for its own sake, but speaks of the future because of its impact upon the present. All of us have a curiosity when time will end. But Jesus reminds us, Daniel reminds us, the key is to live well now. So I'd like to challenge us with three reminders for this week of living. First of all, be wise. Be wise. Daniel uses this word wisdom, same with Jesus, and this word wisdom in this context means to be spiritually discerning of error. 
Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus says this. Right after, the first thing he says after they ask him the big question is a warning. It's a warning of spiritual deception. See that no one leads you astray. That's what's most on Jesus' mind about the future. At Christ's community, we believe sound doctrine matters. And at the core of sound doctrine is a clarity about the gospel. The very core foundation. What is it? That Jesus came to earth as the incarnate Son of God. He lived a sinless life. He voluntarily laid down his life, shedding his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. After three days, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and Jesus will one day return bodily to this earth. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus shed blood, satisfied once and for all on that cross, the holy righteous wrath of God. And he makes it possible for a holy God to extend forgiveness to you and me and to give us new creation life as an outpouring of his amazing grace. We receive that gift not by anything we could ever do, but in repentance and faith when Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And when we embrace Christ, our names are written in the book, the heavenly roster, secure forever in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And the question for us from Daniel to Jesus to Revelation is the question, is your name written in the book? Daniel builds to this. What is your eternal destiny? What is mine? Perhaps the most important application of this message is to be sure you know where your eternal destiny is. And if you never have to place your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm asked often, well, Tom, do you think we're getting nearer to the end of the end days? I knew I'd get some emails if I didn't at least mention it. And I'm not sure. But I will say a couple things. Fair? A couple things? My opinion. Two things suggest to me that we're moving quickly toward the end game. And that is the vast, unprecedented persecution of Christians around the world. Jesus said that would happen. The other is the expanse of the gospel throughout the world. And at the same time, massive spiritual deception. We are living in a time when good is being called evil and evil is being is being called good. And the concern I have most and what makes me think we're moving fast toward the end game, I don't know for sure, is the church itself. Rather than being a prophetic voice of truth to our culture, the church is becoming an accommodating parrot of the culture. In this time between, we must know God's revealed word. 
We must be people of the book. We must be discerning about false teaching and counterfeit voices. Remember the scripture says the evil one looks like an angel of light. See, we think false teachers are the outspoken new atheists and secularists. It's often the good and kind person who wears an ecclesiastical robe. We must be discerning. Secondly, we must live well. What I can find find compelling here is that after Jesus speaks about the end of the world, he says, okay, here's two stories. One is be ready, the parable of the ten virgins. Be ready. You don't know when I'm going to come back. There's a sense of abnormalcy and normalcy. It's all the same. Jesus will say later on, it's like in the days of Noah, people were eating, drinking, getting married. Life was normal in one sense. That's why his return takes us by surprise. Yes, there's an intensification. There's also a sense of normalcy like frogs in the kettle, the church is slowly cooked into compromise. Jesus says, be ready and work hard. Isn't it interesting the parable of the talents? If you've read that? He, he summons the story of five or three money managers and it's set in work, which is important. And three of them are given some money to invest Two invest it well, one hides it in the ground, and the one who hides it in the ground, who's not a faithful steward of what he's been given, is held to the highest sense of reprimand at the end of the day. Jesus makes very clear that what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not just on Sunday, really, really matters. And this parable is set in vocational stewardship of work, being faithful where God has you. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. There are lots of stewardships. One of the most important stewardships Jesus teaches when time runs out is our vocational stewardship. We talk a lot about work mattering in Christ's community. This is where Jesus goes. Being faithful in your area of contribution. It's not just about remuneration, it's contribution. As a student, your schoolwork, or at a part-time job, stay-at-home spouse, a retiree, all of life is stewardship that God will hold us accountable for the time, talent, and treasures that we've been given. What are you doing with what what God has given you? See, heaven is not just sitting around with a harp. I mean, harps are cool, I guess. It's about continuing to do what you have been doing now, only better. Who you're becoming, who you're becoming, and what you're doing now makes a difference for eternity. This is what Jesus teaches. So live well now. Last, stay hopeful. I mean, when I look at the brokenness of the world, my life, the culture, where we are, it's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? But what we know in the authority of God's word and the inexhaustible riches of the gospel is that God is in charge. He is moving human history forward to an end, a stunning end. And life is a mixed bag right now in the time between. We are in the already not yet, the time between. In this parentheses, we have to have hopeful realism. Life is always a mixed bag. Your life and mine. But one day, that will not be the case. As apprentices of Jesus, we face difficult days ahead. I don't know what the future holds. Exactly. We don't know when we'll be going home for good. We don't know all the details, but we know a good outcome awaits us who are in Jesus Christ who only by his grace and his shed blood and his love for us 
that we have been written in his book. We don't know what the future holds. Exactly, we don't. But we do know who holds the future. And then based on the authority of God's holy word, if you're in Christ, you're in good hands. Let's pray. Father, these are mysteries in our finite views, our limitations. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you for what we do know, that you are moving history forward and there is an end, that eternity beckons all of us and may we take that seriously, that our names are written in the book of life and that we are living faithfully as stewards of our time, talent, and treasure this week fill our hearts with hope and expectation. Amen.